Romans 12, 9-13. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. In recent weeks, I have talked about love your neighbor as you love yourself. Take your skin, pull your skin off, painful as it may be, wrap it around another person so you see yourself in that other person with all of your longings, all of your needs, all of your cravings, all your pain, and treat yourself the way you want to be treated in that other person. And we've talked about loving not just our neighbor as we love ourselves. We've talked about loving our enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Do not return evil for evil, but good. Now this morning... I don't know whether to call it harder or not, but for some of you, it'll sound harder. For me, it sounds harder. I want to call you to love the people in this room and other Christians that you know with tender, heartfelt, fervent affection. This is different. This is more. This is different than doing nice things for them. This is different than returning good for evil. This is different even than praying for them. It's different even than blessing those who curse you. All of those are actions that you do with your mouth or do with your mind or do with your hands or do with your arms. I'm now calling you. To do something with your heart and your emotions and with your feelings called love with tender affection. Now, it is true that love is more than a feeling. It is true that love is more than a feeling and that when you don't feel good feelings towards somebody, you should still do good things for them. If it lies within your power to do a right and kind and decent thing for somebody and you don't feel warm toward them at that moment, do it anyway and ask God to help you. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what I believe God is calling us to in this text, which is more than that now. It's deeper than that. And I think, though I'm not sure, I think it's harder than that. Namely, Love Christians, all Christians, likable and unlikable Christians, mature and immature Christians, carnal and spiritual Christians, Christians who gossip about you, Christians who let you down, Christians who frustrate you, Christians who disappoint you, Christians who have some doctrinal differences from you. Love all Christians, especially those that you 
touch in your ordinary life with affection. Strong, heartfelt, deep, emotionally charged affection. Look at verse 10. Let's read 9 and 10. Let love be without hypocrisy. I'd love to just preach a message on that. Maybe I will. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. I'd love to talk about why that follows love without hypocrisy. And why you can't be a loving person if you don't hate. But that's not this morning's message. Be devoted. Here it is. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now the words here are very important. Because these are not throwaway words. The Revised Standard Version says love one another with brotherly affection. This word be devoted to or love is really an adjective in the original. It's be this kind of person. And it is a kind of love that is not just doing, not just saying, but feeling. It's used only here in the New Testament. But it's used many places outside the New Testament, so we're not at a loss to know how it's used in other areas. Cranfield, in his commentary, says it refers to a, quote, tender affection toward each other in family love. Let me tell you about C.S. Lewis's book, because this orients us. I wonder how many of you have read The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. Raise your hand if you've ever read The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. Ooh, that's good. That's good. Um, that's good. I'm impressed. Um, that's a life-changing book. It's a little short book. I called John Bloom on the phone. I put it on your phone mail, John, so you'll hear it on Monday. I said, John, let's get a, a, I don't know, maybe it's already there. Let's get a bigger Lewis section in the bookstore, and that book in particular. These books, Lewis, Lewis's books transform my life in large measure between my sophomore and senior year in college. But this one... The four loves talks about four loves. Gives them, he gives them their Greek name. Agape, which is the godlike love of self-giving. Philia, which is the friendship love of two people not facing each other, but facing the common cause and linking arms like comrades. Uh, eros, which is two people facing each other, falling in love, desiring each other's bodies, and wanting to give themselves to each other in that sexual way. And the last one is storge, which is affection like you might have for your child or your dog or an old sweater with holes in the sleeves that your wife wished you'd thrown away a long time ago. But it's just you. You know, you, mm, this sweater is you. And you wear this sweater or slippers or a place in the woods where you go and something happens and you, you have an affection for that place. Now, that word, storge, with the word philos on the front of it, is the word in this text. Love each other with affection. With a family affection. The kind of affection you have for a little child, or the kind of affection for a little brother. Now, you've got to be careful here, because I know. <laughs> I've got four sons, and sometimes the last description I would ever use to describe their relationship is affection for one another. But I have seen some marvelous breakthroughs, especially when absence makes the heart grow fonder. 
But we won't dwell on that. You know, you know how brothers and sisters ought to feel at funerals and at graduations. And you know, you know what affection is. You've seen it. Now, that's what's being called for here in verse 10. Love each other. Be devoted to one another with tender affection. Now, before I unpack some of the hard and threatening implications of this, which you may feel as you sit there, perhaps not feeling affection for certain Christians that you know, let me just show you that there are other verses that press this on us. For example, you don't need to look these up. I'll just read them quickly. First Peter one twenty two. Since you haven't in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. It's fervent and it's from the heart. It's not just doing things dutifully by willpower. It is fervent and it is flowing out of the heart. We are called to be changed into the kind of people that when we look at one another after this service, or I look around you right now and see different ones of you, God commands me that I feel toward you. Not just that I preach faithfully to you. Not just that I visit you. Not just that I write for you. Not just that I administrate and do vision statements for you. But that I feel for you. He commands me and you to feel something. Or Philippians 1.8. Paul. Paul. I wish I had known Paul. I have a feeling a lot of people would not have liked Paul. But uh, if you could stand his rough edges and his... His fiery ups and downs. I think he was a man of incredible affection. Just incredible affection. He he described himself as a nurse one time over his children in the church. Another time he said, I'm like a, a, a laboring mother if I could just see Christ birthed in you. Well, here he says, for God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And the word he used... Splunknoi means intestines. With the intestines of Jesus. That means he felt homesick for them right here. When he wasn't around them and he had to be a, a thousand miles away from them and he was in prison and he didn't know if he'd ever see them again, his intestines twisted. He felt for this church. He loved this church, not just by writing them theological truth in the epistle to the Philippians, but he felt for them. And that's what we're being called to do. Here's another one. I love this one because the, the, the graphic picture it portrays in 2 Corinthians 6.11. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but by your own restrained affections. Now, in like exchange, I speak as to children. Open wide to us also. See what he's asking us to do? He's saying, don't let your heart go like this. Get narrower and narrower because they've hurt you so many times or let you down or they don't say hello or they didn't call back or... And your your heart just goes narrower and narrower and narrower. There's maybe a little teeny bit of affection left. And out here is resentment and bitterness. And you're just battling not to hate. And God says, I mean, God through Paul says, open it, open it, open it, push it back. We're going to talk in a minute about how you do that. But this is what he's asking for. 
As you look around this room, as you look at your spouse, as you look at your children, as you look at other Christians, expand your heart and and be a free-hearted, wide-hearted, open-hearted, not narrow, cramped-hearted person toward them. Let the emotions flow out to other people. One last illustration to show you that this is a, a high priority in the New Testament. Five times in the New Testament, four in Paul, one in Peter, it says... Greet one another with a holy kiss. Peter calls it a kiss of love. I always kiss my sister goodbye in Charlotte. I always kiss my dad goodbye. I learned to kiss my dad every two weeks when he left home for two, three, four, five weeks at a time. I'd kiss him. I was a 15-year-old and I kissed my dad. I was 16 and I kissed my dad. 18, I kissed my dad and I'm 49 and I kissed him goodbye. Last Tuesday. I don't kiss many of you. Sometimes. And one woman kissed me on the way out this morning, on hand. <laughs> I've been mean, here. This is threatening stuff. When when the Bible says greet one another with a holy kiss, and we say, oh, culturally we shake hands. Well, that's good. That's good. But I just wonder if it's really the same. Is a handshake really expressive of tender affection? There's a connection between why, why he talked about a holy kiss of love and why he says love one another with tender affection. The point is this. The texts of the New Testament, especially our text here in Romans 12.10, call us not just to do good things for each other, Not just to pray for each other, not just to speak kindly of each other, but to feel something toward each other. Open your hearts wide. Love each other with brotherly affection. Now, let me insert a warning here. A beware. I think, I've experienced this, so I know it's true at least in one case, and I believe that I watch the world and the church that is true in lots of cases, that at this very point, In reading the Bible or listening to a sermon, there is a popular theology, a way of looking at God and a way of thinking about our affections that virtually nullifies this text immediately as soon as we read it. We pass over it, on to the next verse, and the theology goes like this. God is the kind of God who would not command from us What we do not have the immediate moral power to produce. I do not have the immediate moral power to produce affection in my heart towards somebody who's just wronged me. I can't. I can't say, come on heart, feel affection. I cannot do it. Therefore, he can't command it to me because he would not command of me what I do not have the immediate moral power to produce. He can only command me to do things physically that I can actually control with my willpower. And therefore, I am not accountable before this command in Romans 12.10 and I may move on to the next verse and leave that for the kingdom. Heaven, maybe. Now, we don't process all that. That happens so fast in our minds that we just move on. It's an escape hatch. We we just drop right through it. And we do not deal with this text. And many like it. 
All because of a false view of God and our emotions. I call it false because it is not true that God does not have the right and is not the kind of God who may command emotions that we do not have the immediate moral power to produce. He does have that right and he exercises it in this text. And I exercise it on his behalf this morning and say, love one another with brotherly affection. Whether you can or not is not an issue for whether he has the right to command you to do it. I'll illustrate that for you. For example, if you are, if it is right and good and fitting for you to feel joy before the Lord, he commands you rejoice in the Lord. Whether you can or not, he commands you rejoice in the Lord. If it is right and good and fitting for you to feel sorrow and sympathy for somebody who's hurting He commands you, weep with those who weep. If it is right and good and fitting for you to feel gratitude because some great gift has come your way and you don't feel any gratitude, he commands you, be thankful. Colossians 3.15 If it's right and good and fitting for you to feel remorse because of some wrong you've done to somebody and you don't feel remorse, he commands you, be sorry and weep and mourn, you sinners. James 4.9 And if it is right and fitting for you to feel fear because of the temptation of sin and you don't feel fear at sin, he commands you fear him who, after he has killed the body, can destroy both soul and body in hell. Everywhere in the Bible, God commands emotions to be a certain way. And we have absorbed a certain popular theology, a certain view of God and our emotions that says, I am not accountable for things I cannot immediately produce by willpower. You are, you are responsible to feel what it is right to feel, whether you can or not. You see, the fact that we are defective in our hearts, I'm a defective person in my heart. And that the defect of my heart makes my emotional life inadequate to the kingdom call is no excuse. I'm guilty for that defect in my heart. So when you hear this command coming to you from from Romans 12:10, love one another with brotherly affection, with tender hearted, warm affection. Do not take the escape hatch and say, I can't produce that. And therefore he can't command me of that. And therefore I'm not accountable to do that. And therefore on to the next sermon. Tell me something I can get my hands around. And like a good businessman in America, accomplish. You see, right here, Right here, we are at the brink of whether Christianity is real. Either it's a man-made religion that you can manage on your own by your willpower, or it is a supernatural religion that confronts you with the impossible and then brings you the Holy Spirit to create new possibilities in your life. And I believe Christianity is supernatural. I don't believe it's a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. And therefore, for me to tell myself to read what I cannot perform, I cannot perform affection. I cannot perform affection. And God says to me, love them with affection. I am confronted at that moment whether I believe in Christianity or not. Do I believe in Christianity? Do I believe in the Holy Spirit? 
Do I believe in the power working God? Or do I only believe that Christianity can go as far as I can go in my willpower and my ability? A lot of people want religion like that. And they create theologies to fit that religion. You know better. Now, why is this so important? It is so important because loving each other with tender-hearted affection is a witness to the truth that God is our Father. If we don't love one another with tender-hearted affection, we are lying about who God is and who we are in Him. You are my brother and my sister. I am your brother. We have one Father. And when we love each other with affection, we testify to our own consciences and to each other and to the world that that is true. God is the Father. God has created a family. You were born once into a natural family. If you're a Christian, you were born again into a spiritual family, the family of God. You were given at that moment, brothers and sisters, you were given the spirit of your father. And the spirit of that father working through you is an affectionate spirit. God has tremendous affections toward his people. He loves his bride. And we are to love each other that way. The issue is, will we be truth-telling in our emotions about God? Now the question is, what do we do? Suppose you're sitting there right now, and God has honored this sermon so far, so that you are saying, all right, I admit that he has a right to tell me to love Christians with affection. I also admit I do not feel that affection for certain people that I can think of, and I have a hard time feeling it for many. In fact, I am fighting mainly not to hate certain people, and you're telling me that I'm supposed to feel affection for those people. All right, all right, I hear you. That much, God is telling me to do that. And I am willing. I'm willing. What do I do? Let me close with these four suggestions. Number one, pray Desperately. Pray earnestly. You see, right here in the middle, right here in the middle of this green sheet is this little box. It ought to just be pulsating. Called prayer. Five half hour times are set aside during the week for prayer in this church. You know, one of the reasons for that, why I press for that as a pastor Corporate praying, not just individual praying. One reason is that if you're like me, you have an awful hard time concentrating in prayer alone. I mean, can you really spend 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes in prayer alone without your mind wandering all over the place, starting to repeat yourself, saying vain things? I mean, prayer is incredible warfare for me alone. But when I'm here with Oscar, with Bob on Friday morning. We are so focused. We are so focused. And the energy is there and the spirit is there. And the 30 minutes goes by so fast. And my Friday is transformed by it. So I'm going to be as, at, at, at as many of these as I can during the summer. Not just one or two. I lead one of them on Friday. But I'm going to be at as many of the others as I can be. The other reason is we're talking about a supernatural reality here and we can't do it if God doesn't do it. And the only way to engage God is prayer. God, make me this kind of person. 
So that's number one, prayer. Number two, this may be the most important, not sure, focus on heavenly reality, not just earthly frustration in relationships. One of the reasons we do not feel affection for one another is because the human way of handling disappointments is to think about them over and 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 over again. And you see, if you say it long enough, it becomes a rhythm of life. If you think how how badly he wronged you long enough and repeatedly enough, if you get up with it and you go to bed with it, you will kill affection. But if, and God will give you the grace to do this, you take your mind and your heart and you set it on things that are above. You set it on Christian realities that made you a Christian, specifically this one. Take this person now who wronged you, or who's very hard to get along with, who who believes odd things and acts in odd ways and doesn't seem sensitive to you at all, and has, has let you down and disappointed you and frustrated you repeatedly. And I'm telling you to have affection for that person, not just be decent to that person Start saying, God is her father. God is her father. God is my father. God is my father. God is our father. God is our father. She is my sister. She is my sister. I am her brother. We have one Savior. The same blood was spilt for her sins and my sins. The same back was rent. We have one risen Lord. The same Spirit is within us. We together, unimaginably, are going to link arms, hug, and ascend into the presence of the Lord. And on a new heaven and a new earth, with all glory, rejoice and exult with each other, face to face, nothing hindering, forever and ever. Preach those truths to yourself. God will kill the opposite if you preach those truths. But if you put on that resentment tape, Remember what he did. 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 You kill affection. You kill it. Which truths will you live in? The Bible repeatedly calls you to live in the truths that made you a Christian. The early part of this chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you do that? It's what you set your mind on. What will you set your mind on? What will you dwell upon morning, noon, and night? What will you sing about? What will you hum about? What will you think of as you go to bed? What will you think of when you wake up at night? What will you think of as you're eating your meal? What will you think of as you're riding in your car and you're going home? Will you let the world, this age, and the prince of the power of the air grip your mind and make you play those old tapes? You don't have to do that. You can say no to those thoughts. You can put on the tape of the kingdom and the scriptures and say, God is our father, her father, my father, our father. God loves us. God has affection for us. Birth in me, oh God, that affection. I call you to do it. First, pray. Second, dwell upon, set your mind upon, think upon the truths of God's fatherhood and their implications for your life. Number three. Do not fall prey to the thought that love is an all or nothing thing instead of a growing thing. 
I think if you heard me say this morning, there are two possibilities in the Christian life. Failure and strong affection for all Christians. You'd all walk out hopeless. I would too. What I want you to hear is this. You are being called this morning to a new level of affection. And there are many levels. I get this from 2 Thessalonians 1.3. Your faith is greatly enlarged. The love of each one of you, listen now, the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. There's a big range of where we all are in this. Big range. Some people are just so affectionate, so full of it. Others are so cramped and narrow. What God is calling for this morning is that you join this low-level pastor in moving with him through his defects into a new level of affection for each other. And then pray for another new level. And then pray for another new level. Don't, don't be paralyzed by an all-or-nothing mentality. That'll kill you every time. It is growth, and we're all at different levels. My last exhortation and guide as to how to do this is to say, don't be a relational fatalist. A relational fatalist is somebody who first says, this relationship has been so bad for so long, and the track record and the history of it is filled with so much pain and so many letdowns and so many disappointments and so much frustration that there is no way I could ever treat this person, I mean, feel toward this person affection. Can't be done. It can't be done. That's one way they might talk. Here's a second way. The other way is to say, look, you don't know the kind of family I grew up in. Not only did we not show affection, we didn't feel any affection as far as I can remember. And therefore, it isn't going to happen. You preach till you're blue in the face. It isn't going to happen. That's fatalism. That's atheism. The Bible does not say, Romans 12.10 does not say, love one another with brotherly affection unless you grew up in a family where there was no affection. It doesn't say that. It says, love one another with brotherly affection because you have a father, a new father, a different father, a perfect father, an absolutely affectionate father who's rich in mercy, great in love, whose whole enterprise in the church is to fix broken people. Nobody grew up in a good family. Nobody grew up in a perfect family. Everybody's wounded. Everybody's broken. Everybody's at different layers. But do we believe in God? Do we believe in the Holy Spirit? We do. And His Word comes to us calling us this morning to new levels. Let me close with the analogy of marriage. Marriage is a hard place to live. You single people, don't, don't assume if you were married that you'd be happier. Marriage is a hard place to live. Because the two people that are thrown together, they didn't know each other. Nobody knew each other when they got married. Nobody knows each other. Thirty years from now, 
you, you, will, you will say, this is not the person I married. That's irrelevant to God. That's absolutely irrelevant. Marriage is sealed with a vow, for better or for worse, till death do us part for a very good reason. For this reason. I'm going to close with this, but I want to tell you what happened in the first service. A couple came, caught me after the first service. Tears streaming down their face. This guy gave me a big bear hug. He never hugged me in my life. With tears streaming down his face and thanked me for hope. This is not a sermon about marriage. Though maybe it is, as I think about it. But here's, here's the point. God ordains that we lock ourselves in in marriage. And this is a kind of analogy. It's not a perfect analogy to the church. Our relationships here in this room are not exactly like marriage. It doesn't have the same permanence. But in marriage, God locks us in with a vow till death do us part for this reason. He knows affection will die. He knows it will die. And if we were not locked in, we would destroy by divorce or murder or something the garden where God in his sovereign, awakening, miracle power after ten years of hostility can create affection. He can. He does. That's why they were crying. They felt that, I believe, for the first time in several years. The same thing is true in a church. We're not locked in the same way. But God means for there to be commitment so that in the circle of commitment, over time, He can, by His miracle-working power, give birth to what you once thought was absolutely impossible. Have you not, you married couples, have you not at times said, it'll never be the same. It'll never be the same. It'll never work. I could never feel that way again towards him or her. And three, four, five years later, after blessed, gut-wrenching commitment, it happened. Out of nowhere, totally unexpected, for no apparent reason, she was attractive again. There was a heart again. There was hope again. Don't give up on any relationship. Don't give up on any relationship. Let's pray. Lord, would you come, Holy Spirit, and in the circle of commitment, conceive, conceive affections like you did the Son of God in the womb of a virgin. Impossibly. Would you stand for the benediction? And for the benediction, I'd like you to not bow your head, but just look at me and receive this word. The Lord loves you with an absolute affection this morning. And I, as a pastor in this church, love you with a growing affection this morning. And if you 
have been touched and are willing to say that you long for God to beget in you a greater affection for each other this morning. Let's do it by all saying together, Amen. And all the people said, Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.